And we're live. Welcome back to The Future Of. I'm your host, Jonathan Narvi. And today, once again, I have Kathy Shadle joining us, uh, the film columnist for Stein Online. Uh, you can check out her columns, uh, Shadle at the Cinema, uh, SteinOnline.com. So I'm so excited to be talking about, uh, once again, the future of culture and politics. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, and we're gonna be talking about politics and culture through the lens of film, but not exclusively through that. Um, Kathy, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks for having me back. Um, just for those who didn't um, listen to the pre our previous uh, conversation or may not may be a little unfamiliar with your work, can you give sort of a, a Coles Notes version of who you are? Sure. Uh, let's see. I started blogging before blogging was a thing back in 2000, and I've written for a variety of publications like Tacky Mag. Uh, I used to write for Front Page, many, many places. And uh, Mark Stein, the great uh, author and broadcaster, uh, he and I sort of became friendly during the whole human rights tribunal mess that we had going on in Canada about 10 years ago. And uh, I started writing uh, movie columns at his behest over at his website mm. about a year and a half ago. Mm. And uh, so every Saturday I have a new one. And uh, that's really the main thing I'm working on these days. Very good. Very good. Um, not to, to get into too much detail on that, but uh... As I recall, Mark emerged very much victorious in that uh, in that landmark uh, legal battle. So he, um, yeah, he really yeah. did. Um, <laughs> I, it was a costly fight for McLean's. I mm, think mm. it was two million dollars in uh, legal fees. Um, whereas, of course, the plaintiffs uh, get all their legal fees um, paid by you and me by our right. taxes. So that was exciting. <laughs> Once again, the intersection of culture and politics. Okay. That's right. Um, so uh, our, our topics today, we, we have a few different things I want to get into with you. The first one relates to your column uh, about I shot Andy Warhol. And uh, I'm sad to say I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, I did watch the um, uh, the trailer and several of the, of the videos that you um, uh, included in your review and uh, number one I was amazed that I haven't seen this movie because it seems like something I would I would definitely want to see uh, so if, if it's on Netflix and I haven't seen it that's that's my bad <laughs> um, and uh, the um, the other thing is I, I, I think you, you just made such a, a, a great point about uh, well you kicked off um, I, I, I guess it's it's a little bit uh, of a weird thing for me to be reading your words when it's your words. Uh, oh, go right ahead. Here, but um, yeah, the 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 thing that makes this uh, film timely. I'm just going to read a bit of the introduction of of your um, of your column. I shot Andy Warhol. Sure. Um, so. Let's see, I don't spend a lot of time at the New York Times, except for the crosswords, but was prompted to visit late last week by David Iowa Hawk Burge, who tweeted, it's a tragedy 
that her important treatise calling for all men to be killed has been overshadowed just because she attempted to kill a man. Um, and this was uh, in, in reference to um, Valerie Solanas, who um, the New York Times uh, provided a, um, uh, an obituary. And the, uh, um, you know, the, the, this person was the, as you've noted, the author of the Scum Manifesto, the Society for Cutting Up Men, and uh, you've written, notably many New York Times commentators expressed disgust and dismay at the paper's decision to memorialize Solanus. Who's next? Charles Manson was a common refrain. Um, so I, I think um, you, you've, um, the, the, this column delves into not just the film, but the, the surrounding culture around it. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd like your thoughts on um, what is the, um, what what do we learn from not just the film itself, but the um, uh, you know what people have taken from it? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm I, I what happened was the New York Times decided during Pride Month because it's a month now uh, to do belated obituaries of uh, I guess you could say gay people who should have been famous or or who were forgotten when they did die so here's an old bit now uh 30 years later or whatever and mm. i was amazed that um people who read the new york times were incredibly offended that you know they would do an obituary for the woman who tried to kill andy warhol and um, that's really what Va valerie solanus is probably most famous for although the scum manifesto is still in print and uh is read by uh radical feminists and curious people um to this day and uh the movie does not really glor set out to glorify her um but my complaint, and it's kind of a stupid complaint, is that uh, the woman in the lead role is so good that, I, and I'm sure that she's far more attractive and charismatic than the real Valerie Solanas, that I'm concerned that people who watch it will say, hey, this Valerie Solanas, she wasn't so bad, you know, uh, because that's what happens when you put something uh on screen, even if you put something terrible on screen, you are sort of implicitly glamorizing it, no matter how bad it is. And uh, so that was one concern. But I mean, as a film, especially as a first film, I have to give the uh, director credit. She managed to do a really good job. Mm. Um, but it's one of those things. I mean, the 60s and 70s were a really busy time. So busy that people can actually forget that someone almost shot Andy Warhol. It's kind of like today. Today, living in 2020 is like living in the 70s. Every day, there's some damn thing going on. And it gets exhausting after a while. But uh, yeah, so I, I just, I remembered the film. I decided to rewatch it and write about it basically based on that sort of bizarre obit. And what I thought was the kind of hopeful sight of New York Times readers actually being appalled by something. Mm -hmm. um, there's some interesting things that you touched on there. Uh, number one, your observation that, yes, the, the uh, actor who, or actress who, who plays the, the role 
Um, yeah, I, 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 as I said, only uh, watched the trailers, and I, I was struck that uh, just in in those scenes that I watched, it was a very compelling performance. Uh, I, I was I was drawn in, and uh, I wanted I wanted more. And uh, you know, I think you've noted in in the piece, you know, she's not a a, a sexy woman, but she is she has a certain seductive quality about her. Uh, it, it's, it's just, this person is, is extremely interesting. And, yes. uh, um, so, um, and I, I think that's, you know, uh, I, I guess it is a credit to, to the filmmakers. You know, I, I have no idea what this person was like in, in real life, but you know, the, the, the best villains are not, you know, sort of cookie cutter, um, you know, uh, evil for the sake of evil folks. And, and of course she's not the villain of the piece. I guess, I suppose she's more of the anti-hero. Of the piece, that, although that's very true, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, when you're when you're watching it, and I guess if you're female and you're in a certain really bad mood, um, you can read the Scum Manifesto and kind of find yourself going, "Well, yeah," you know. <laughs> Especially if you consider uh, women's role at the time, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that she didn't raise some valid points, um, but. Then to just go off and, um, I mean, she clearly had uh, untreated mental illness, which, as I said in the piece, um, what a shock, considering her really unpleasant childhood. And in those days, I don't know how many, how far things have progressed, but, um, you know, when, when the big uh, advances in psychiatry were things like lobotomy and electroshock, it's probably no surprise that she ended up uh, not getting any better. So her paranoia eventually um, got the better of her. She concocted a bizarre idea in her head that Andy Warhol had stolen some of her ideas and uh, she was going to get him. And it's, it's very sad. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a human tragedy. I, I'm not saying I have a lot of sympathy for her. Um, but you know that it was just another day in the seventies. <laughs> mm. As an aside, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm not a, a licensed uh, psychiatrist or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I, I I just can't imagine how um, electroshock therapy would be used to treat someone's par uh, paranoia. <laughs> you know, being tied down to a table and and subjected to electric shocks. I, I gotta say that would make me a little less trusting of my fellow human beings, but um, there, there there must be some kind of a, a methodology to their madness. I think it's actually making a comeback because, as you can imagine, it's not as primitive as it used to be, and um, so I don't I'm not an expert on that either. But um, there are people who say that you know, used properly, it can be helpful to a small number of people. Um, but that's the problem with trends in, in medicine or in anything, you know, to, you know, yesterday's cutting edge, uh, you know, oh, how were we to know it would be so terrible? You know, we look back and, and think about how bad it was, but at the time that was what was cutting edge. And it's kind of important to realize that, that when mm. people say the science is settled, sometimes maybe it isn't and it shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the, in, interestingly, um, 
Uh, I, I think I mentioned Douglas Murray in our last uh, podcast. He had a line about this, I, I guess, from an, an opposite take, not not about electroshock therapy, but uh, this this was in relation to uh, the idea of giving um, testosterone to four or five year olds, or or you know, uh, essentially, and and designated designating young children as uh, uh, as uh, trans, and um, he he apparently had been talking with his editor and his editor had a line, something like, you know, in every generation, you, you know, you'll look back and you'll think, what were they thinking? Uh, What madness was, and, 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 and uh, so the thing to think about, the the next thing to think about is what is it that we are doing? That is uh, that the the generation of the future will, will say about us, what were they thinking? Well, I like to think uh, that people will look back and say that about the trans movement, but I have a feeling that that's not really going to happen, that um, it's just going to become common knowledge. Oh, of course, this is great, uh, because Mm -hmm. I I think the balance of power has shifted in terms of uh, opinion and who decides... um, you know, who writes history and mm. who decides what is real and not real. Mm. Um, so as much as I'd like to say, oh, yeah, everyone's going to look back at X and laugh. I'm, I'm not 100% convinced of that. So mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a wait and see attitude about that one. I think that is a fair-minded attitude to that. I, I am a little bit more optimistic, and maybe it's just because... Um, uh, I've been listening to a number of podcasts that um, that they're not exclusively dedicated to this topic, but uh, I've noted a, a few trends. Number one, um, lawsuits uh, seem yes. to be in the offing. Yep. And um, you know, just the the consequences of early treatments uh, changing the chemistry in in young people's bodies, making them infertile, uh, rendering their genitalia. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll never. You know. You know, you'll you'll have boys who are stuck with uh, evidently uh, small penises, and for, <laughs> for their entire lives. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know, uh, who knows what kind of mental uh, uh, consequences going on? So uh, it may be that the the reality of the situation just overwhelms the I- ideology at some point. But we'll, we'll see. I hope so. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so, sorry, that, that was a bit of a, a tangent, somewhat, somewhat related. Um, I, I wanted to just sort of close the loop on this talk about uh, I Shot Andy Warhol with, you, you mentioned that uh, a, a few times that we're living in the 70s. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I just remember being a kid in the 70s and every day there was some uh, horrible thing going on, like every single day. Hijackings were a huge deal back then. and. Uh, Patty Hearst being kidnapped and Watergate, um, all kinds of environmental um, uh, freakouts going on. Um, and, you know, a guy has a book out now. Uh, one of my hobby horses is the um, Hard Hat Riots, which is finally getting some attention. And uh, that was the day after uh, Kent State uh it's rather cinematic actually um a bunch of hippies went down to wall street to protest 
the Kent State shootings and were met with the very angry, uh, hard-headed guys who were then working, ironically, on the World Trade Center. And a huge riot broke out, which was almost disappeared by the mainstream media. But uh, I happen to know a guy, a now ex-communist, who was the uh, photographer there, and he has a lot of photographs of it. And, um, you know, in today's social media, of course, that would be everywhere. But because even then the liberals controlled the media, they didn't really want to show um, hippies being defeated by these uh, by these hard hat guys, and it was a it was an embarrassment. So it got covered up, and that was like a day. It lasted maybe a day or two, and you know you think about it was '68, but the Democratic National Convention and um, the '70s were a very colorful time, and uh, in in insofar as things like the news. And it, it got really overwhelming. I think as a kid, I was very overwhelmed, but even the adults were. And all the, the oil crisis, gas prices, inflation, Jimmy Carter, just a gigantic uh, kaleidoscope of awful every single day. And 2020 really reminds me of that. I feel sorry for kids who are trying to make sense of all the crazy that's, mm. that they see in front of them. Yes. Well, two points. Uh, first, um, as you as you said, you know, it's I, I don't know if that, that it's history repeating. I it, it's it's uh, I'm sure you would agree or I think you would agree. Uh, you know, history repeats, but not not always quite in the same way. It's never right. quite the same. So, uh, you know, where you had hippies versus construction workers. Uh, I think it was last year, or maybe it was this year. I can't remember. Uh, Gavin McInnes, the the uh, the Proud Boys versus Antifa. Right, right. And, and uh, just you know, for those who have no idea what that's about, it's uh, essentially Antifa had been uh, uh, threatening some kind of a dust up, and um, were uh, I understand actively hunting for Proud Boys uh, and uh, chucking bottles of urine at them, and you know, starting a fight. They got their asses kicked, yeah. Um, and uh, none of the Antifa uh, folks were uh, ever charged, I don't think. But I believe several of the uh, Proud Boys in that altercation went to jail for several years. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and you also talked about <clears throat> the the bias of the media. I think, um, uh, you know, just to touch on that briefly, I, I think some listeners may have an understanding that. Uh, if anything, look, newspapers, magazines, uh, radio, TV, these are all companies, corporations. They're clearly right wing because they're about making money. Uh, that, that's sort of the surface level of it. Or at, if, if they've done any kind of research, may, you know, very surface level, they, they might think, ah, oh, well, you know, maybe it's a 50-50 split. But to those folks, I, I would say, you know, just sort of name a, a newspaper that, or, or a media outlet that isn't Fox News or the Wall Street Journal. I, I or, or of course Rebel, which most of them won't. Uh, most folks uh, are, are are sort of uh, conflicted about. Like I, I consider it obviously news media, but um, you know, a, a lot of folks in in Canada and the U.S. would just be like, uh, this is. Uh, 
I, it's it's not news. It's something. So it's, right. it's its own category. Um, so I, I don't want to get in, into that whole tangent, but um, you know, for those who think that there is a right wing bias and not a left, an overwhelming left wing bias in the media, um, as as a PR professional who deals with reporters every day, I can <laughs> tell you the default setting is left. Well, it is, but they think they're moderates. Like, that's the thing that always gets me is that if you ask them, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm a middle of the road kind of guy. Because, of course, they think that because all their friends are the same. So they figure they must be middle of the road. Mm. They, how can I be a radical or a leftist if everyone I know, like that, that is the anti-definition of fringe, everyone mm -hmm. I know. Um so I, I think that their bubble prevents them sometimes from being brutally honest. Mm. And, uh, you know, and it makes me think of the whole um, Liberal Party. I mean, you know, Canadian values. Like to them, it's just taken as given that immigration is good, multiculturalism is good, diversity is good. The idea of saying any of those things aren't is like saying the earth is flat. Like they cannot... Um, wrap their minds around that or the idea that there are people who don't agree with that or that there are people who don't agree with that who are intelligent mm. um so yeah i think when you're when you're always talking to yourself in your bubble and you know this can happen on the right too but the right as you say aren't the people who are running everything i i get a kick like you do out of the fox news people yes and you know okay, Fox and, and, you know, they never have an answer. <laughs> um, so good. So good. Uh, we could, we could uh, record an entire other episode about just media bias, but uh, I, I did want to get into your other column, Pontypool. Um, and uh, I, I, this is, um, I'm embarrassed to say, this is another film that I haven't seen yet, but I've been well. It I've, is I've Canadian, been, so that's going to happen, right? Well, the thing is, I was actually aware of it when it came out, um, and but maybe because it was Canadian, it had limited distribution in theaters, so I didn't see it at the time it came out, and then I just sort of and it's. I was actually looking for it on on Netflix last week because I wanted to prepare, and uh, instead I was reduced to just checking out the trailers again. Um, the reason for my interest. Uh, yes, number one, I it, it was uh, Canadian, but that's not necessarily, you know, a reason to watch it. I'm sure not every American wants to watch every single American film. Right. Um, the, um, but I am a big fan of zombie movies and zombie TV shows. Um, so this, it, it caught my interest at the time. Um, that I, I, I guess like this is this is way before walking dead came out so the my my uh i was a fan of like the um uh night of the living dead and that series um so anyways the the movie itself is actually not just about cannibalistic zombies in fact i don't even know if they're cannibalistic um well why don't you tell me a bit about the the film and and what it means well um what it means, uh, you'd have to get Tony on, uh, the, the writer, to maybe give his idea of what it means. But I, Tony Burgess, not to be confused with Anthony Burgess, by the way. Tony Burgess is a Canadian writer. And um, what happens is it's a, it's a very small 
radio station, the only one in an incredibly small, very uh, isolated, small, snowy Ontario town. And uh, the DJ, who is kind of a um, Imus knockoff, uh, this is his last gig probably that he's ever going to have because he's been fired from every place else. And um, they're sort of semi-stranded in this snowed-in little radio station and start getting reports from the weatherman uh, about weird behavior in the town. And uh, I guess to make a long story short, the, the idea behind the movie is that language is the virus. You know, there's always a virus in a zombie movie and some guy in a white coat says a bunch of stuff that quote explains it and um it's just an excuse to have the movie whereas the theory here is the whole idea of the movie you know is language a virus and um i think you know if it had been made today um it could be a lot richer but you know i i think this idea is an old one i mean that gossip is a virus that it isn't just words that you're actually uh, doing harm to people and yourself if you gossip about them. Uh, William S. Burroughs talked about language being a virus back in, uh, I guess, the 60s or early 70s. So um, the filmmakers, Tony Burgess, etc., set out to kind of explore this. Uh, can words be contagious? I mean, we look at something like uh, Twitter, and you know, you see how words uh, can escalate into uh, actual fights and uh, a lot of hatred, a lot of you know, the addiction of saying certain words over and over again. The way that a lot of social justice warriors, um, I think they mood alter by using jargon and. Um, I think people in professions that use a lot of jargon, like businessmen and that, one of the reasons that we can't get rid of that weird business jargon of things like, oh, what's the one that was really big a few years ago? There's, there are always these catchphrases in, uh, in business that go in and out of fashion. I think it gives people kind of a weird rush to speak that way. Um, Sometimes people mood alter by swearing a lot. It becomes a habit. And again, I think it releases some kind of um, chemical in the brain that's either soothing or exciting. But for whatever reason, words have a lot of power. And this is what the movie is trying to get at in its very uh, low budget, um, almost uh, you know, experimental theater kind of uh, kind of idea. Um, one of the things in the movie that I thought was good and the filmmakers didn't let themselves explore because being Canadian filmmakers, I'm sure they're men of the left, is that um, it, there's, a, there's a dichotomy between English. The English language is actually the virus. And so people start communicating in French. And I thought that was a wonderful missed opportunity to explore forced bilingualism in Canada. Um, but I, I would have made French the, the virus um, and English the cure for it um, had I made the conservative version of, 
of Pontypool. So I, I think there were almost too many ideas to squeeze into a 90 minute movie. And, um, and a lot of them were left unexplored for ideological reasons. But, um, you know, just as sort of a, a thinking man's horror movie, it's, it's not bad. I, but a lot of the Canadian stuff, like the bilingualism, would probably be lost on a lot of Americans. Unless you did a remake and it was Hispanic. And there was some kind of, you know, press one for English kind of gag that they could get in there to sort of tell people, signal to people, okay, this is what we're going to do. Uh, so, you know, interesting, great performance by the lead guy, by everybody really did a good job. Mm. And um, one of those movies that you watch and you think, oh, I, it's good, but if only they mm. had done this. If they had done my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, I, I'm, I'm sure that had to do with commercial uh, interest being a factor. Like, you know, already it's, it's starting um, with a bit of a hurdle, just being a Canadian production. And then switching it over to more of a focus on the French-English divide in Canada, which would have been completely alien, I think, to yep. most U.S. audiences or world audiences. They would have been like, what is going on here? I have no idea. Um, I, it, I suspect that was a factor. I think you're absolutely right, you know. Mm. And uh, so they pulled themselves back. And... Uh, Kind of a shame. I think there was a lot of uh, stuff in there that could have been explored, but they wanted to have international distribution. And it does have a, quite a cult following in the U.S. And mm. uh, that's probably, that probably helps a lot. Mm. I, I toned I it down. Yeah. Um, just a few thoughts on this. Uh, clearly, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the language as a um, virus or language as a, as a vector of viruses right right is 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 maybe maybe better uh, you know i'm I, i'm sure they, they weren't the first to think of that but uh this reminds me of a uh talk uh, or a podcast I, I'm, I'm sure sam harris has made this point a number of times but i thought it was funny the way he put it something like uh it was something like if you were to speak in an auditorium full of say a hundred people or several hundred people, um, just based on the, the habits of the, uh, the human mind, brain chemistry, the, uh, you know, how they're feeling that day, whether they're inclined to uh, agree with you in the first place, um, a certain segment of that population in that auditorium is going to hear the exact opposite of what you just said. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and so in a sense, you know, if we, if we take the virus to the next logical step, so those, you know, some segment of people you talk to are actually going to be inoculated against your ideas by virtue of listening to you uh, and, and uh, may in fact spread their resistance to other people. Um, uh, but I, I guess, you know, if, if you manage to spread your, your ideas or your virus to enough people, maybe you can overcome the resistance. I don't know. And it's an interesting movie to watch. Uh, and the reason I guess I, I picked it was with the coronavirus. Uh, there was an awful lot of uh, 
uh, information on the web with people looking back at things like the Journal of the Plague Year and um, writings about different plagues and uh, viruses and epidemics um, throughout history. And again, language does come into that, you know, in their own, what sounds to us archaic way, a lot of these writers were sort of groping around for a way of explaining how the words that were used to describe it, why they sort of were also contagious and took on a kind of a life of their own. Mm. And um, it's, it's like, you know, the way that everyone is walking around going self-isolating. Mm. Well, I think that's just called isolating, hmm. you know, but it's important to have a new-ish word to feel important, um, to somehow you're trying to, I don't know, not brand what you do, but uh, it's something that I think people will be exploring when they look back at the coronavirus. Um, mm. As with a lot of crazes and uh, fads and so on, the invention of unnecessary words to describe something uh, is, is a phenomenon that I always find really interesting, you know. Uh, um, that's, uh, again, that's another topic we could get into for, um, a, a whole episode, the invention of, of new terms and, and the, the mutilation of the English language. Um, you know, t I guess tied into this is the, um, the, I, the, the, the relatively new idea, I, I think it's new in the last, uh, three or four years of, uh, language as, as violence. Uh, oh yes, and and uh, I I can't remember who um, uh, made the point, but you know it seems logical to me that 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 there is a purpose behind that of uh, simply, um, well, if if you think of what when you are uh, legitimately allowed to use violence or use any methods at your disposal to uh, destroy anyone in front of you, the uh, the the number one um, reason we would all agree to is self-defense. So if words are violence and someone has said something and it's violent, well, in self-defense, you can destroy them uh, right. with, with no repercussions to you. So if we're all in agreement, then um, the, you know this, this wave of uh, whether it's uh, actual violence or just uh, doxing, of uh, mainly uh, doxing of conservatives or those seem to be conservative, even if they're not even close to being conservative, they're, they're often just, uh, I, I don't have to name names, but you know, people who would consider themselves to be classical liberals who simply don't, do not sign on to the latest orthodoxy of the left and their, their lives are destroyed, their jobs are lost, their reputations are, are hobbled. Um, I don't know if you have anything to, to say about that. Well, I think that um, that shows a trajectory that uh, we see a lot in politics. You know, um, advocacy, advocacy groups, um, I don't know, the uh, Anti-Defamation League or something, uh, their point, um, such as it was even 10 years ago, was um, words uh, need to be stigmatized and punished because they could lead to violence hmm. and then that slowly gets whittled down into words are violence hmm. 
um, I think mostly because people who are in academia where it's important to try to come up with new and exciting theories so that you can get your um, thesis approved, just sort of uh, condense stuff down to its illogical conclusion. Mm. So, you know, we can argue about whether or not uh, certain slurs lead to violence. I can see how that works, but we've allowed it to degenerate to the point where words are violence, which is two different things. Um, but I think you have to have kind of a nimble mind to discern that. And a lot of the people who are in charge don't have very nimble minds. And this has just mm. become, it's easier to say. <laughs> mm. It's, mm. It, you know, some of it just comes down to, oh, it's so much easier to just say words of violence, you know? Right. Um, so, but that kind of um, intellectual laziness, uh, as we see, is what does cause a lot of violence. The people mm. who are yelling words of violence are always the most violent people. The words who, the people who are, I'm anti-hate, um, hate pretty much everybody. The anti-fascists are all fascists. So um, a lot of this is, is self-delusion mm. on their part. But uh, mm. I, I don't think a lot of self-examination is going to be coming out of uh, people like that anytime soon, unfortunately. They're all sort of congratulating each other. And when you have companies like, powerful companies like Nike and so on, adopting your slogans that just reinforces your beliefs already right right um well said and uh before we entirely leave the uh pontypool and and uh, that genre behind i, I did want to touch on the walking dead because I, I think we're both fans of the show and this uh you know i i think that show actually the way it has changed has uh some things to say about uh, the, the culture and where it's gone and where it's going. Um, the, um, I, I've been a fan of that show since the start and it's gone, undergone a few iterations. Um, you know, essentially, uh, it started off as a, you know, really simple premise, you know, survive a, a zombie apocalypse. And, and, uh, you know, in the meantime, the, the uh, you know, very, very early on, it, it's clear that the main threat is actually not so much from zombies, but from other human beings. Um, and uh, this is expressed often internally uh, amongst the group in, uh, uh, you know, arguments and, and drama and, you know, even, even before they're uh, getting into fights with um, The Walking Dead. So... Um, I, I've, I've watched the trajectory of the show change a little bit. Um, you know, it, it got very much like, uh, very bleak, like the road. And then, uh, I actually thought the show could have ended on a very interesting note, uh, as, as the survivors make their way into the Alexandria safe zone. And, um, there, there's the, the I, I just thought the the final episode could be the, um, as they're listening uh, the, to the, the sound of children behind the walls, uh, the, they walk in and you don't quite know what happens to the group. But it carried on. And uh, then there was the, uh, uh, um, the season where I, I gather they lost a lot of viewership because the violence went over the top. Uh, and today, 
the show has f- has changed. Uh, I think James Woods <laughs> had a uh, the the actor had, had had a comment on Twitter for which he was lambasted, but he's an old guy and he doesn't care anymore, and he's got his money, <laughs> no. so it's like yeah. I I don't recall what the tweet said exactly, but it was something like uh, are. Are, are they just now stalking this show with every single visible minority oppressed uh, yeah. culture, what, what, whatever on the show? Is that is that what's going on here? Um, and and I would include in that um, um, obese folks who you know are not a uh, strictly a an oppressed minority, um, but I I've just never understood seeing. Uh, uh, you know, very overweight people in a show about the apocalypse where clearly getting food is probably not the easiest thing to do. That that just seems, I, I always get uh, this, uh, I break the immersion of the show and I, I know I'm walk, watching a TV show when I see a fat person on The Walking Dead. Well, wasn't there a really fat guy on Lost? Yes. Yes. Which I didn't watch, but all I knew was that there was Fat Guy on Lost and why. Yes. Well, they actually did explain that. Uh, oh. I, 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 I watched the show. Uh, the, there was this bizarre thing where the, uh, these mysterious people would be parachuting supplies onto the island. And uh, this fat dude remained fat because he was the guy who kept finding those stalks of peanut butter and cereal and potato chips and you just oh. couldn't share them with the rest of the group. But nobody ever said, why are you fat? Like, uh, uh, I, I, they, they brought it up on the show. Uh, yeah, you and, would think. And in fact, they tried to help him lose weight, which, you know, really shouldn't have been an issue. It should have just no. happened naturally. It's like, geez, wow, I guess it really is a, a glandular problem. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, not to pick on overweight people. It's, it's you know, a, a cross. No, but just in the context of a certain plot line, you have to ask yourself, this doesn't, this seems weird to me. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That that was uh, sort of a meandering, um, I, 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 I guess... The problem is I've been watching the show for 10 years and, and I never had anyone to talk about with it. So I, I just sort of let fly. But if you have any thoughts about the show well, and it, what it means it, to the broader culture. It's my understanding that um, the sort of multicultural aspect of the show comes from the original comic. So I'm, I don't really think I can criticize that. Um, and in fact, you know, I call it my weekly uh, exercise in multiculturalism. I quite enjoy the fact that, uh, you know, everybody is kind of getting along when they're getting along. And um, what I what I used to think was funny, and this is quite a few years ago, was that they did some kind of survey where they said, it turns out that in red states, The Walking Dead is the most popular show. As we all know, this is because it's an allegory about white people killing uh, illegal Mexican immigrants. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you have never seen this program, have you? Like, you just, you live, like, talk about living in a bubble. If you believe that that is what the show is about, you live on another planet. Like, yeah. it, like, I like, okay, allegories are great, and I'm willing to hear out people and their theories about this is an allegory of something. No. In this case, you are so stupid. 
and and bigoted you know oh yes you know because uh i yeah no, um I, I don't think anybody's race has been an issue since that one funny bit where you know early daryl as opposed to now evolved daryl says so are you chinese or something oh yeah yeah I, and he I, goes i'm korean so then two episodes later his crazy brother shows up and goes who's the chinese guy and daryl says he gets really puffed up he's korean <laughs> and i and like that was it i think that was in season one it was hilariously funny yeah. and that was the last thing time anybody said anything yeah me. well you know i i see this <laughs> That's funny because I, I noticed that with um, I, I I play video games sometimes. And there's a series called Fallout, so another post dystopian uh, or or post apocalyptic dystopian kind of a setting, and uh, you you can choose your character and make them whatever they want. And of course, and there's you know people of all uh, racial backgrounds presumably and on and. It's just in, in every iteration of that video game, uh, yeah, race is not an issue. No, no <laughs> one cares. Nobody cares. If you can pick up a gun and defend yourself and defend your friends, uh, we want you on the team. Now, I don't know where things stand now um, mm. because, let's face it, it, attitudes do evolve at a really rapid pace. But mm. it's my understanding that in the Walking Dead fandom, like if you go to a convention, they have black people dressed as white characters. They have white characters dressed as black characters. I don't even necessarily mean wearing blackface. I mean, just putting the dreads on and I'm the king, right? With a little tiger or something. Right, right, or Morgan. And yeah, nobody okay. says, is like, I wasn't there. I'm just saying, it seems to me that nobody gives a rat's ass about this. Now, I don't know what conventions are going to be like when everything else opens again. There might be some kind of black lives matter uh after shock freak out about people doing this in which case that would be really too bad because um i thought that was adorable mm. and uh encouraging and everyone was having fun uh i'm sure someone will come along to wreck it if they're not already plotting to do so but mm. um yeah, I just so I, I I often get a kick out of what people who don't watch X mm. think X is is like mm. and um, how stupid they are. Yeah, you know? I, I wanted to pick up on a few threads that you left there. Um, uh, number one, just, you know, with the coronavirus uh, hitting us and we're all locked down and it's this is, I mean, we're not in apocalyptic times, but this is a, a you know, fairly, uh, I, I, can't, I can't say dire, but a, a uh, it's not a happy time for a lot of folks. Uh, right. And it's the, probably one of the unhappiest times in, in, uh, for as long as we, we can remember. Um, and I sort of thought, well, maybe this is one of those times when humanity pulls together because, okay, we, we don't have an alien invader threat, but we kind of do in the sense that these are microscopic uh, viruses that are attacking all of us. And let's just, you know, we're all hunkering down together and, you know, let's, let's feel a sense of solidarity, which lasted about five minutes. Right. Or the, uh, the racial, uh, 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 how, how do I put it? The, the pro the civil unrest and protests over, um, 
uh, you know, supposed uh, white supremacism and like the, this all kicked off seemingly out of nowhere. Well, not, not exactly. I mean, there, there, there have been many, many people making the, the argument. I won't say making the case, but making, maybe, maybe making the claim that there is systemic racism in our society. I'm just, I'm so, uh, you know, people will, will accuse me of, you know, being, uh, you know, denying that there's a problem. Uh, well, obviously, uh, you are part of the problem. But, you know, I saw growing up, we had almost achieved that, uh, that sense that they had in The Walking Dead and, and in Fallout and, you know, the, the of, of, Nobody cares about this stuff. Can we get on with <laughs> no. other stuff? And and it's it's such a distraction. It's it's something. It's like the the number of cycles in people's brains that people are devoting to this nonsense. Uh, like if you look at the data uh, of, um, for instance, uh, you know that with with the slang of of uh, George Floyd by that psychopath uh well actually i, I don't even know because I, I i read parts of the the transcript uh which i'm you know the the of of the arresting officers with floyd um and uh it's like it's not like they're making racial slurs or they're like they they, they seem like they wanted to get him into the car to arrest him for that stupid counterfeiting thing and uh, probably murdering the straight up murdering the guy in front of cameras was not something that was they were intending to do. But I, I don't know. Anyways, the, the point is, uh, you know, this has set off a, um, you know, uh, s countless claims of, oh, there's systemic racism in, in the cops and the government and, and the whole structure of society. And it's like, OK, well, look at one. Here, here's one data point, just the, the number of uh um say black people who are um uh killed by cops who are unarmed every year in the states i think it's something like 19 last year right. which you would think from uh from all the coverage that this is something that's happening every day and we're talking thousands and and it's uh and and literally every time a cop looks at a person of color they are uh, looking around to see if there's any witnesses to see if they can just straight up murder people. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but this is, uh, it's been weighing a lot on my mind. Well, you know, I think if the left didn't have exaggeration, they wouldn't have much, you know, it's the mm -hmm. same with um, COVID. I'm not saying that people weren't dying of COVID, but most of them were in their 80s, and, um, you know, the, I think the other day, the, the BC figures were one person under the age of 47. Um, mo the average age, age was 85. I mean, the average age that you live in BC isn't even 85, you know, and for this, we're actually locking down the whole country. Um, but they, they love a crisis because it, gets them very excited and gets the money and things like that. So there always has to be an exaggeration. You see it with climate change. Um, and the sad part is that it works. You know, I mean, it works in the sense that 
Al Gore's movie has now brainwashed millions of kids into thinking that um, polar bears are going extinct and the world is on fire and so forth. And, mm. um, you know, because they own the means of production. Uh, they own the means of media and educational production and things like that. So mm. um, it, this has been good. And I write about this a lot in my columns, actually, when it's relevant of, you know, the, the junk science that has brought us to where we are today. Um, you know, I, I've heard other similar anecdotes, but just like my personal one was um, I had a male hairdresser and he was straight, but the, the, the salon was in at church in Wellesley, which is boys town in Toronto. And uh, we got to talking and I said something like, like, um, so what percentage of the population do you think is gay? And he said, oh, 30. <laughs> and I've heard people tell similar stories. I mean, the, yeah. and you say, well, actually, it's maybe five. And they will not believe you. Because haven't you watched TV? Right. Everybody's gay. I put on Murdoch Mysteries for the first time uh in about a year and a half to find out that the jewish aspergery detective is also gay now you know I, everybody's gay on tv mm. everybody is trans mm. and so this gives everyone the idea that uh you know th this is a huge problem because they have to totally exaggerate it and it gets exaggerated in mm. fictional media and then fiction becomes fact um and, you know, they, they need this because they know that the facts don't um, align with their uh, power tripping uh, agenda, really. Mm. So I think this is an excellent place to segue into the final thing I wanted to talk about, which was um, uh, how conservatives and, and I, I should, you know what, I'll preface this by saying this isn't a conservative podcast. Uh, but right. I do have a conservative commentator on the podcast with me right now. So this is the time to get into it. And uh, yes, I do lean. If, if I was going to lean any way, it would not be leaning left. So uh, I'm, I'm a business guy. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, anyways, the, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to segue to uh, how conservatives have been fighting rather ineffectively against this overwhelming uh, um, domination of the culture by, um, I won't call them liberals, by the left, uh, and I won't get into the, what the distinction is because it, it's, yeah, what, it, no, it doesn't I know. matter. It, it, yeah. yeah, let's, uh, you know, look, Google Dennis Prager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'll tell you. Very, very He knows good. everything. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, the, um, so anyways, the two things. Number one, um, I, I know you have criticized the um, uh, conservatives who try to fight back through anonymous accounts online, uh, which I completely agree with. Um, and I, I, I know that you also uh, were critical of uh, how conservatives wasted a lot of time, effort, and some resources uh, developing vanity uh websites video mm -hmm. sites blogs uh which were, were not just not effective at, at moving the needle in, in terms of the, the culture but 
Uh, and and I, I don't know, I, I don't recall your thoughts on, you know, moving to say other platforms where they would be welcome as opposed to say, you know, the, the, the main social media channels are, are essentially cleansing themselves of a anything that is uh, not um, to the, uh, to the liking of, of social justice warriors. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about how uh, people of that political persuasion can be effective in your mind. What should they be doing? Um, well, my old thing has been, you know, they can't kill everybody and they can't fire everybody. And, um, you know, it, it sounds paradoxical, but nobody would have to be anonymous online if, nobody was anonymous online you know i think that um anonymity especially for conservatives um encourages a kind of empty bellicose um let them come to my door second amendment woo kind of idiocy that i don't think is particularly helpful um but my main concern as somebody who has always signed their names to things and knows people who sign their names to things and at the cost of literally millions of dollars uh, out of their own pockets and also many lost nights of sleep is that it simply isn't fair to say that you have to be anonymous because you might get fired from your job, mm. but it's fine for uh Ezra Levant to use his real name and have people harassing his parents, you know, um, and just walking around talking about how brave uh, a small number of people are and uh, aren't you great and I wish I could sign my real name, but I can't, you know, if, if you really want to help relieve the burden on the conservatives who aren't anonymous, it would be helpful for you to be uh, not anonymous. Uh, mm. I think if you sign your name to things, um, in general, and this isn't always true, because we all know people who, including me, who sign their names to things and just get in a, a fit and write crazy stuff. Mm. But it generally makes people more circumspect about what they're saying, mm. about what they're sharing. Mm. Um, I, I don't think anonymity is 100% a bad idea. I, I would look at, I mean, for all the awfulness that goes on over at 4chan, um, they were fantastic at identifying a guy, an Antifa guy who bombed a building the other day because they just, they, they crowdsourced it. They put up a picture of the guy and um, he was wearing a vest. So somebody searched the vest on Amazon and found a review that said, I bought this for my grandson to wear at protests. And that's how they figured out who the guy was who bombed the building. Mm. Now, all, all those people are anonymous and half of them are probably nuts. So that's unfortunate, but there are amazingly tiny micro instances where I understand anonymity. But if all you're doing is um, retweeting an article you like or whatever, I would say use your name or get off the internet. 
Mm. I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. No one is making you be on Twitter. No one is making you be on Facebook. And I'll be brutally honest with you. Your opinion maybe isn't that original or insightful or um, even spelled correctly. So it's not going to be any great loss. You're not Thomas Paine. Okay. Mm. Get a grip on yourself. All the anonymous uh, bros out there with their little crusader avatars and, you know, their little, their little, anonymous names that are always like road warrior x29 you know come on just Mm. stop Mm. um this this whole larping of the revolution is is very sad i think it's a waste of energy so it would waste less energy if everybody used their own names it would take the burden off the 50 or 100 or whatever people out there who do use their real names Mm -hmm. and um uh you know i I, I don't really see a downside. I, I'm sorry. You know, if you're afraid of losing your job, the answer is just don't go on Twitter. Mm. Well, I, you don't you, have to. Yeah. Well, I, I'm divided on this. Um, you know, and I, it would be hypocritical of me not to admit that I have self-censored, um, you know, out of uh, concern of blowback. And in fact, Um, I have faced uh, uh, business consequences because of the things I have written um, that shouldn't really be uh, uh, that controversial. Uh, You know, I'll I'll give one example. Um, I I put out some uh, Facebook posts in support of the Canadian oil industry at a a time when it was tanking thanks to protests. This was actually pre-COVID. Um, and, uh, thanks to those, uh, tweets and some other, uh, or, or Facebook messages and some other bits and pieces, uh, cobbled together that, you know, anyways, the, the long story short is, uh, you know, I, I, I've lost at least one contract in recent times and probably more that I don't even know about. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so a few other thoughts about this, cause I've, I've been dealing with it personally. Um, uh, Brett Weinstein, who is no, no one's idea of a conservative. In fact, he's often said, uh, he would like to live in a society where he could be conservative because it was just so good. He would want to preserve everything. Um, the, uh, he's, he's talked about how, um, you know, those who step aside and, and silence themselves, uh, and don't speak out, uh, are not. Uh, they may have very good reasons for doing so, and they may be in circumstances where they know if they say something, they're fired, and that's not a small thing. Um, but at the same time, um, they are essentially uh, letting other people fight their battles. They're they're putting the burden onto others, right. and and uh, you know it's also akin to you know that the position of a um, it's not quite analogous, but I think of, say, a conscientious objector uh, to a war who, um, you know, that's not entirely a moral position. You would think it, it you might think it is on its face. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to commit violence against my fellow human beings. But if you're in a society that is threatened by uh, dangers of, of the military sort, um, all you're doing is uh, putting um, the burden onto um, your, your fellow citizens to take a bullet or to kill instead of you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that was Robert Kennedy's point in a really good speech to a bunch of 
college students. He mm. said, you know, oh, you're all fans of mine, but you know, how many of you are draft dodgers or how many of you are, did X, Y, Z to get out of the draft? You know, mm. do you realize that because you did that, um, more blacks, more poor whites in the South are the ones that are being shipped overseas. Mm. So think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, see, like, okay, so your point was that you said something and then there were consequences. And I, I agree that those consequences are absurd and totally shitty. But my objection is that the people who are anonymous because of things that happened to you, mm. are it's well, now they get to all happen to you. You know, they're never going to happen to them because they're anonymous. So I would say you can't be brave and a coward at the same time. Mm. So um, pick one, you know, Mm. um, don't say crazy stuff on Twitter or controversial stuff on Twitter or whatever, but hide behind a name because Mm. then Jonathan Narvi is the one who's going to get in trouble. It's, it's, it's just, it's cowardice. So Mm. post recipes or cute dog pictures or something, Mm. but uh, it, when it comes to things like politics, unless there's a name behind it, I just, I can't take it seriously. And I go, you know, pretty far with that. There was a great essay, uh, the, the flight 93 election, the 2016 essay that that guy wrote great essay. Um, but I never linked to it because the guy at the time didn't put his name to it. It was only be- when he became really famous that he sort of came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know, when he had some signature at some magazine or whatever, then it was safe for him to come out. And, you know, like fine prose is no excuse, you know, no matter how beautiful something is, if it's anonymous, it's just hard for me to uh get behind and you know you have a choice um you don't have to give your opinion on on social media unless you know you're prepared to put your name on it 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 would spread the uh the burden as as that guy was saying so you know and i say that as somebody who's always like i said put their name on things so of course i'm biased (laughs) but i've i've seen that it works yes have i lost jobs as you you know insightfully said jobs i never knew i lost you know Mm. probably but i'm also very gainfully employed Mm. there are other things out there that a person can do and uh so i don't know i you have to make a choice and i think straddling the line between being this sort of bellicose keyboard warrior but doing it with a fake name just totally unfair and uh, it just gluts the whole discourse anyway mm-hmm. well um is is it i, I don't want to uh finish maybe on such a gloomy note did you have a um a bit of advice then for those who um well okay what what would be either on an individual level or a collective level what what's the thing to do i guess well aside from just stop being anonymous and, and don't say completely stupid stuff. I, I, I don't want to suggest, um, how, how will I put this? Um, I, you, you can't defend yourself against a dishonest critic. And there are some people who will go after you no matter how reasonable 
your position is. They will just infer whatever insane meaning into what you've said. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess the idea is just be smarter about what, what we're saying, you know, given that, uh, there, there is such a domination of the culture from a certain side. Um, you know what? My, I guess my question is bigger than that. It's, is it possible to change that state of being of uh, the, the left just owning essentially all the means of production when it comes to the culture? Um, I'm really not that optimistic about it. I think we had a chance 15 years ago to... Uh, construct a conservative or libertarian, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, social media infrastructure, and all that money was turned into, as I said, vanity websites, unnecessary news aggregators. Uh, people poured tons of money into think tanks mm -hmm. that are basically a waste of time. Um, and uh, so... I think we might have missed uh, a way of doing that. It it looks like the only thing that's going to work is some kind of trust-busting thing, which I have mixed feelings about mm. when it comes to uh, social media. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I, I think a lot of conservatives are just kind of wimpy, disguised as, I'm busy working for a living. Um but basically they just they aren't quite as motivated they're hoping somebody else will do something um there's a kind of a apathy you know and again i think that screaming crazy stuff or even mm. intelligent stuff online anonymously is just another bit of energy that could have been used you mm. know if we could have harnessed all that and put it into something uh, fruitful and uh, positive, then we'd be in a better position today. Mm, mm. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm not really that convinced. It's um, I think that uh, the right is probably always going to be kind of fringy because the the cycle seems to be left to say crazy stuff, pass stupid laws come around 25 years later to realizing, oh, you know what? After all, that was kind of stupid. Conservatives who are still alive go, yeah, we told you. And then the whole thing starts all over again. So, <laughs> yeah. So okay. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, well, there's a, if people can Google this, but there's a famous article, I think at the New Yorker called um, Dan Quayle was right. And it's about um, how, you know, Dan Quayle, everybody and their grandma laughed at Dan Quayle, the vice president, for saying that Murphy Brown, the TV sitcom, was a bad influence on women. And um, so, you know, 20 years later, somebody rather high up said, you know what, Dan Quayle was right, telling women that when they're middle-aged, they should just get their eggs unfrozen and have some kid without a guy and Da da da, especially when the character is like this wealthy TV anchor woman. Da da da. How many lives were probably wrecked by some not very bright person saying, Well, I saw it on TV, it was on Murphy Brown. Single moms are cool. Um, and so it, it, it's a wonderful article, but it's sort of like, Well, thanks for coming out. Like we told you, 
uh, this. You made fun of us. Now you're apologizing. You, you see it all the time with the Ronald Reagan. Was he so bad? Mm. George W. Bush. Remember him? Mm. I never thought I'd miss George Bush. Though every it, it's a cycle. Mm. So I think that unfortunately, um, we're we can we have to kind of keep fighting. But I don't know if you ever win, especially the way that things are are just set up these days. Mm. Everybody said, oh, kids these days, all their PC stuff, but when they get out into the workforce, boy, are they going to learn a lesson. Well, the workforce is college now. HR uh, departments are college. Mm. Uh, the peop all those people who you said were going to learn a lesson are running the companies and think all this stuff is great. So, mm. you know, uh, sometimes I think, conservatives speak in these cliches like well when they get out in the real world and they're unexamined and that's another thing i think that conservatives have a bad it is holding them back is the unspoken kind of cliches that we all throw around with each other are not um helping our thinking and our discourse evolve i'm glad ronald reagan said something in 1987 or whatever but you know it we have to move beyond that. I, I had a big thing on Stein in the comments about the happy warrior thing. Oh, I'm a happy warrior. And it's, you know, it's easy for Rush Limbaugh to be a happy warrior when he makes $30 million a year and has never been sued that I'm aware of. Um, so the burden of conservatives should not only be warriors, we should be happy warriors is a burden that is just too much to place on people. And I think with the death of uh, Mike Adams, uh, we see that this is a dangerous uh, thing that we should be aspiring to. But, you know, and until conservatives stop speaking in cliches and thinking in cliches, I don't think we're going to get uh, very far. We're mm. just talking to each other. Well, on that bright note, <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking about the future of culture and politics. And uh, I'm so glad that we, you know, after after getting through about uh, probably 45 minutes of preamble, we uh, managed we did manage to get to talk about the future, even if uh, the future doesn't look so gloomy for one side. So, um, well, I maybe maybe things will have changed. Uh, in, you never know. Yes, yes. By the by the by our by our next conversation, which I look forward to. Me I've been, too. Uh, I I'm the host of the future of Jonathan Narvi. And uh, I have been speaking with Kathy Shadle, the uh, movie columnist over at Stein Online. And uh, again, can you remind uh, our listeners uh, where they can find you? Yeah, if you go to steinonline.com every Saturday, I have a new uh, movie column up. Uh, it's not really a review often so much mm -hmm. as a kind of deep dive uh, and look back and putting the movie uh, of whatever era, often very old ones, into some kind of historical context, giving you background information and, um, you know, just trying to get people. It's hard sometimes to get conservatives to watch anything that doesn't have um, car chases in it, but um, I do my best over there. Okay. Well, I appreciate your columns and I, I read them all. So thank you very thank much you. for your time. And thank uh, you. you have a great day. You too. Thank you.